Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, we are currently in Jaipur, Rajasthan, and um, we have just started a project called the Wonder That Was Kashmir. And today is our first episode. We have with us um, Professor Subhash Kak. He has appeared on this program before, but this is a brand new series. And um, he is a computer scientist and a Sanskritist. He's published several books on, um, on yoga, on Tantra, on uh, Sanskrit, and of course, his field of, of computer science and um, quantum mechanics and so on. Um, so today I want to begin this series. Uh, it's based on an essay uh, that, that uh, Dr. Kark has published called The Wonder uh, That Was Kashmir. It encapsulates some of the, it encapsulates and highlights the milestones in Kashmiri history. So we, we talk about philosophy, history, and art, uh, starting from the early period, the Vedic period, and into, into of course, uh, modern times. And uh, uh, the syncretic nature of this civilization and, 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 and the wonders that evolved from it. And of course, uh, you know, we all know what's happening there today. So we don't want to delve on the conflict too much because it's, uh, you know, we already have that 24-7 on the news and on social media. So this series is going to uh, consciously uh, stay away from the, the, the politics and the conflict. And we're going to focus on the beauty, the art, the history and the philosophy um, of Kashmir. And... Um, neighboring areas and as an extension India and South Asia as a whole because of course you cannot isolate Kashmir from 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 South Asia so or Asia in general so today we are going to start with uh, with, with a subject that's always fascinated me which is uh, Buddhism in Kashmir because not everyone has heard, everyone has read about Sufism and about uh, Hinduism and Shaivism in Kashmir, but not many people talk about uh, Kashmir's rich Buddhist heritage and how it influenced and impacted Buddhism in, the re in Asia and the rest of the world. So uh, uh, let us start with that. And uh, Professor Kak, uh, would you like to uh, start with, your, uh, uh, with what you wrote about uh, Buddhism, Kashmir Buddhism, in, uh, in your essay and then uh, expand from there. So it's all yours. Thank you, Vikram. Glad to be on your show. Um, well, um, first of all, uh, let me begin by saying that uh, the categories that we use are not necessarily the way they were perceived uh, by, by Kashmiris uh, in particular or by people in India and Central Asia and China in a more general sense. And I'm talking of the two categories of Buddhism and Hinduism. Um, and uh, the reason for that is uh, both uh, Buddhism and Hinduism are, uh, are journeying on a path of understanding. In Hinduism, it's more of the self or Atma. In Buddhism, it's more about compassion, Karuna. Uh, and uh, and living uh, a perfect life, but uh, scholars uh, who have delved into both uh, Buddhism and Hinduism very deeply, like um, Anand Kumaraswamy, um, uh, hundred years ago, whom I 
truly respect as one of the greats uh, of uh, history of Indian art. Uh, he claims that deeper you go into Buddhism and Hinduism, you realize that they are literally identical. And uh, the Buddha also spoke about Sanatana Dharma and uh, famously on his deathbed, as described in the Mahapari Nirvana Sutra, when his disciples came to him and um, uh, were crying and saying that what's going to happen to them now that he'll be gone. And he had only spoken about an atma until then, that there was nothing beyond um, uh, life as um, they were experiencing it. And then um, there is a conversation and discussion and this sutra, uh, the Buddha then says, I didn't tell you the entire story and I didn't answer the question of Atman before because you were too attached to your ways. And just as a mother must, um, uh, must separate her baby who's sick and who has been prescribed a medication by the doctor from her breast uh, until the medication has been taken. So what the mother does is put some bitter stuff on her breast and the baby turns away from it. But after the medication has been taken and the baby has become okay, then uh, she can give the breast to him again, uh, to the baby again. So what the Buddha said was that, look, there is something which persists, which has been called Tathagat uh, Garbha, um, for example, or Buddha Dhatu, which is exactly the same thing as the Atman. So that in reality, uh, quite the same. Now, to go back to Kashmir, Kashmir became a center of Buddhist uh, learning uh, very early on. And uh, the school that was predominant in Kashmir and the surrounding areas was Sar Sarvastivad, uh, which is from Sarvam Asti, a uh, very important tradition in the be beginning also related to Abhidharma. And um, one, and also during the first uh, Buddhist council or whatever Buddhist council that was held in Kashmir by Kanishka, Sarvastivad uh, faction was very strong. And the great uh, missionary uh, whose work has had a tremendous impact on the very nature of Buddhism in China, a Kashmiri named uh, Kumaraji, who was born to a Kashmiri father uh, uh, and a Kuchian mother, a Kuchian princess, Kucha in Central Asia. So he came back to Kashmir, studied um, the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Buddhist uh, sutras, went back, and at some point, he, he, he accepted the Madhyamak doctrine, the middle way, you know, Nagarjuna. And he was, he became very famous as a teacher. And the Chinese abducted him, took him to their uh, capital at Chang'an, which is Xi'an now, and had him uh, supervise the translation of Sanskrit texts. And he's supposed to have translated 300 or more Sanskrit texts. And these, especially the Lotus Sutra, and which has, it is still read uh, 1700 years after his death. And it is, it's, it's really the heart of uh, Chinese Buddhism, Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. And what he says there, very um, importantly, he says that, look, emptiness and fullness are the same. 
there are two different ways of looking at the same reality, which is the heart of Vedanta. Because in Vedanta, you have the doctrine of neti neti, which is that there's no way you can describe it. So for all practical purposes, what you are describing is empty. Or <coughs> the doc doctrine of Purnam, as in Ishavasi Upanishad, fullness or Brahman. Brahman is the entire cosmos of which you are a part. And they are <coughs> two different, two opposite ways of looking at the same reality. So what, uh, what uh, Kumaraji did <coughs> was to give a twist, which was not uh, contrary to the the understanding in Buddhism itself, but it's probably um, not quite the same that uh, scholars of religion in the last couple of hundred years, uh, mostly Westerners, have looked at uh, the categories of Buddhism and Hinduism or Buddhologists as <coughs> being very different. Uh, and that's probably because of the analytical tradition from Europe, which they have applied to various concepts in India. The concepts in India are more synthetic. They attempt to pull things together while the European concepts by the very nature of European thought based on objects and materialism tend to separate things out. So to go back to Kashmir, um, uh, the, the, uh, the tradition, the religious tradition, if we may use the term religion, was a syncretic one. And we see examples of that all over India. We have the example of Harsha, for example, the, the great king. Some people thought he was a Buddhist. Some people thought he was a Hindu or you know, the larger Vedic tradition. And that's true of many, many people, including queens and uh, kings themselves. So it was that tradition which reached its uh, peak, if you will, in the first centuries, well, after Ashoka, uh, say two or three centuries prior to the common era. And I must also say that when we speak of Kashmir, we should also be speaking of Gandhar, which lies to the west of Kashmir, uh, which was to, in many ways, a part of Kashmir, even politically, over many periods of time. And certainly, the languages spoken in Gandhar were also kind of Dardic. At least that's what linguists tell us. Kashmiri is a Dardic language. And these languages also eventually went to Xinjiang, Kucha, and Khotan, and so on. And in fact, uh, all of Xinjiang, uh, at least the southern half, um, was uh, using uh, these languages and Sanskrit until about 1000 AD when it fell to the, uh, the, the Uyghurs as they came down from Mongolia and it became Islamic. So, uh, so Buddhism for all that thousand years from Kashmir on to its twin, I call Xinjiang, uh, Kashmir's twin because not just Kumarji, there were so many scholars, you know, dozens and dozens of scholars who went up from Kashmir and taught in Xinjiang, uh, you know, the rim of the Tarim Basin, and the kings had Sanskrit names, and a lot of, uh, you know, a treasure trove of documents from 
uh, Xinjiang was discovered 100 years ago by Oral Stein, who translated Raj Tarangani, and who did a lot of expeditions to Central Asia. They were all preserved in caves in China to the east of Xinjiang, a place called Dunhuang. Right now, there's a big international project of many, many countries who have been uh, preserving uh, these texts and uh, studying them and documenting them, which is how we have such a detailed understanding of uh, the work of these scholars. Now, through these scholars, then the shape that um, Buddhism took place uh, or obtained in China was, in my view, fashioned by a very unique Kashmiri sensibility which is what we should be calling Kashmiriyat. You know, what is it special or unique about the Kashmiri way of doing things or Kashmiri art or Kashmiri philosophy? And uh, it focused on meditation or dhyana, uh, which uh, became very popular in China, it became Chan. And from China, it jumped across the sea to Japan and became Zen. So all of this can be traced back in the, in the springboards, so to speak, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that can be um, connected to, to, the, to, the, uh, to the Vedic river, or at least that's how I see it in my own uh, work. Fantastic. So to come back to your opening uh, statement, you, uh, just to, I uh, wanted to emphasize that for our listeners and viewers. You were talking about this debate that has been raging for a millennia about uh, the concept of the self, which Buddhist intellectuals have uh, uh, say that it does not exist in Buddhism. And this is what differentiates uh, Buddhism from Hinduism is the Atma, where you say Atta or Anatta, you know, the, what the Buddhists call Anatta and Anatta. And the whole debate is basically revolves around this central point, whereby the Buddha actually never denied the, the existence of a self. He simply said, which is very true, that to obsess over it and to fixate on it is you are losing it by even trying to label it or comprehend it or grasp it with the mind. It's a futile endeavor, you know? So, so, so if you want to reach the self, you, you have to do it in an obtuse fashion. You have to trick the mind. And that is what they call, you know, these koans and the satori and these concepts of Buddhism. Uh, this is what, when you, you, you trick the mind, you know, into letting go of itself and, and uh, grasping on to this sort of an identity. Because as long as you do that, you know, you're not going to, uh, uh, the mind cannot uh, grasp the innate nature of the mind. You know, you cannot, you can only get so far. And I think to some degree, I don't know if any of the Vedantins have addressed this. Have they? Uh, this, have they? Uh, you say neti neti, neti neti Brahman. Okay, but, they, but, but Brahman is there, you know, Brahman is there always. Uh, so when Ramana talked about, you no, know, Nisargadatta Maharaj, I think he was somebody, and when you listen to him, he sounds a lot like, uh, say, uh, Suzuki, Shinryu Suzuki, you know, they sound very similar, Nisargadatta and Shinryu. 
But if you talk about Ramana, who is our modern, I mean, not modern, but he is widely seen as the 20th century doyen of, 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 of Vedantism. Uh, what was his take on it and earlier Vedantists on this central argument? Well, um, this uh, question is central to Vedanta and also to Kashmir Shaivism, which is another form of Vedanta. And they, what is it? Uh, the dichotomy of self and the mind. And you are absolutely right. Uh, what uh, Vedanta says is that through the mind, you cannot grasp uh, the self, because the self is transcendent. It, uh, it goes beyond. They, the Vedas speak of uh, the five koshas, you know, the whole reality as uh, Andamai kosha, which is the body, the pranamaya kosha, the various processes in the body, then the manomaya kosha, which is the mind. But beyond that, you have, first of all, the vijnanamaya kosha, and then the anandamaya kosha, now, the Buddhists also accept all these five koshas. And transcending those koshas is uh, the Atman. Now, uh, the Buddhist psychology is based on these five koshas, and so is Vedic psychology. Now, the difference is that what the Vedas say is that the Atman can be compared to the sun, like the outer sun, and the mind can be compared to the moon. The moon is lit by the sun, so the mind gets the capacity to uh, apprehend reality because the way the light is shining on it. But normally, uh, you cannot apprehend it because of the avarans or the coverings on the mind. And therefore, when it comes to various practices, uh, the practices are to uh, to remove these covering uh, these coverings these coverings or perhaps depending upon the nature of these coverings to produce a crack in it uh, and therefore the light shines through now that's one way and the various practices you know just as uh, even the yoga you know um, yoga chitta vritti nirodha the vrittis on the chitta chitta is like the mirror like that moon and this mirror is clouded. This is another metaphor that's being used. Uh, it's clouded by all the currents and all the eddies in it, or thoughts. Thoughts are like eddies. So if you can calm it, then it will be able to reflect the light in all its clarity. And the moment you are able to reflect the light, then you lose that distinction between yourself and the light. You become one with the light. And that's when you obtain understanding. So I don't see any difference at all. Having studied the Vedas for many, many years, and I've written a lot of stuff on it, and um, looked into not just the Vedantic side of it, but even if you look at Vaisheshika, or certainly uh, yoga, uh, and um, you, and not just that, If you even if you go back and look at uh, the uh, Mahabharata, there is this uh, dialogue between Narad and Yudhishthir. So Yudhishthir uh, asked Narad, I think after he has been uh, restored to the king, or he has become the king now of Indraprastha. So he says, um, how do you obtain knowledge? And what uh, Narad tells him is that you study all the 
sciences or the subjects that one can study until you arrive at a point where you see paradox in what uh, you have learned. And it's at, at having experienced that paradox that you are able to jump across that paradox. And that paradox is paroksha. Paroksha, and you are able to cross that paroksha, and then suddenly you, you see things in clarity. Because what is to be seen in clarity cannot be described in, in language. And Munda Kopanishad tells us there are two kinds of knowledge, apara and para. Apara is linguistic knowledge, the normal sciences and arts. And para is the transcendent. So Atman or Atman belongs to the domain of the transcendent, of para. And that's why language itself, the one that you cannot speak is para, as in the classification of Bhaktivinoda. So I don't see any distinction at all. Uh, in, and, and that's precisely what Ananda Kumaraswamy also uh, felt. And I think that a lot of the scholiasts or academic writers don't have the deeper understanding of these terms. They're looking, they're operating, most of them, not the greatest of them, the best of them, of course, do it very well, but most of them are caught in the web of the terminology and it's not just Western scholars. A lot of the Indian scholars also yes, so yes. haven't yes. done your sadhana yeah. and really experienced it in your bones. Yeah, you yeah. can get trapped in the yeah. words. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think that's what's happening. Yeah. The Indian scholars, are, you know, you know how the education system is in India. So you're taught to memorize and then regurgitate by rote in order to get marks on an exam sheet, basically. So your knowledge is limited to that. And when you, you know, uh, when you approach the acquisition of knowledge and wisdom and memorizing things and regurgitating them and things that have been echoed and, you know, uh, sort of repeated ad nauseum. I mean, there is what there is no scope for any deeper understanding there. You know, this is why in my article I said, you know, you have to go outside the classroom. You know, step the, that's the first uh, uh, is the first step to wisdom is the classroom. It's not the final word. You know, you have to oh, go far absolutely. away. So absolutely, and, and that's true. Not just of the study of uh, uh, our um, deeper philosophical tradition. It's true of all study, even if you're doing music. Um, one of the leading famous musicians, I won't take her name right now, she said that her uh, instruction was to learn whatever the guru taught her, but then she had to break all the rules when she set out on her own. You know, any great musician must at some point step beyond the shadow of the guru, which is not to negate what the guru has done. This is not to uh, diminish the guru, but that's what all true education is, even in the sciences or even in your own sadhana. Ultimately, a great teacher will tell you, will tell the disciple that the disciple must uh, find uh, the path for himself or herself. And, and, and so, so you're right, but I think India has a lot of very good teachers as well, and certainly those who have experience. And uh, when you even talk to people like Dalai Lama, uh, he would tell you that indeed the, 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 uh, the, 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 
the, the deeper understanding is about the same. And all great Buddhist uh, teachers across yeah. the world yeah. acknowledge that, you know, it's not just junior, it's not emptiness. No. There is something permanent. Yeah, yeah. They call and, it... And even, yeah. yeah. Even though we, uh, we, we must at the same time uh, admit that we are not talking of Atman as a thing. If it was a thing, then we should be able to get hold of it. It's not a thing, but as a placeholder, so to speak, because it's something transcendent. The very moment you say it's something transcendent, it means it's not a thing, but it is something which complements the physical reality and our experience of physical objects and things. And it's always on the other side, which is where what Kashmir has done is something incredible. The Kashmir Shaivite tradition, uh, Pratyabhichna, for example, the, uh, the doctrine of recognition. The idea there is that every human being is this brilliant consciousness. Every human being, no matter from what background, which part of the world, is Shiva. Shiva means consciousness, right? The principle of the self. But it's not just a principle. Uh, and uh, one's uh, spiritual understanding or experience of fulfillment of life, if you will, is to recognize that Shiva within oneself, to turn the gaze to, onto oneself, to recognize who one is. And in what, where Pratyabhijna differs from classical Vedanta is that it says that Shiva has the capacity to unveil itself. This self also can act, has, it's not just impersonal, because normally in Shankara's Vedanta, it's assumed that, that without Shakti, Shiva is impersonal. While here, Shiva unites with Shakti in a conceptual schema, you know, Ardhanarishwar. And therefore, Shakti itself gets illuminated in a sense that Shiva unfolds or speaks through Shakti. So it's not that Shakti and Shiva are far apart, are apart from each other. And what it, what it really tells you is, and it's something that's beautiful in so many different, uh, at so many different levels. It says that, you know, first of all, psychologically, it says uh, life is not meaningless. You can find that deeper meaning. You can find that infinite capacity within yourself. You meaning everybody, this is universal knowledge. Anybody can. If they were to delve within and turn the gaze on themselves and find the Shiva or recognize the Shiva that they are. And Shiva not in, in a gender sense, male, female, anybody, we're all the same Shiva. And then the body, because the body is compared to the mind, body is Shakti, right? Body is the moon or is it's that pool of water, pool of the pool, the manas, uh, the lake, the lake of the mind. And, and so ultimate understanding is when one becomes one with the light, right? So one transcends the self and the mind and becomes one. And then what we are told uh, beautifully, just as um, Hanuman was told, he had forgotten that he could fly and he had to be told when there was a crisis 
uh, in the Ramayan. There's a crisis, he was told he could fly and then he could fly. Like with every human being, the mind feels uh, limited and incapable of true understanding. You know, we, are, we all get frustrated. We think life is not worth living. We get addictions, this and that, because we, are, we have hit a wall. But then what it says is, have faith in yourself. Uh, and then you'll be able to fly, metaphorically. And one, when you fly, there is that grace, anugraha. And then you obtain that deeper meaning. There's that epiphany, to use a word from another context from another tradition and in that epiphany in that moment you obtain the deeper understanding and that epiphany is the creative moment that's how all creative work happens all creative arts truly creative arts are a consequence of that epiphany Thanks for listening to the Big Turtle Podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time.